0: Hello, and welcome to the second series of The Burning Issue. I'm Luke Walsh, the editor of the website endswasteandbionergy.com, and I'm looking at how waste management has moved waste away from landfill and into energy recovery. In the first series, I looked at how the UK in particular has developed from a waste management system that buried waste and exported it to markets with more developed infrastructure. However, while the UK's reliance on landfilling and exports has fallen due to the development of its own energy from waste plants, There has developed amongst some politicians a belief that too much EFW capacity is being built under construction or planned. As a result, Wales and Scotland have brought in moratoriums on new projects, a move welcomed by NGOs, but criticised by those in the industry as the two countries effectively declaring themselves closed for business. On this first episode of the new series, I'm looking at Scotland, as I'm speaking to Dr Colin Church, the person whose two reviews of energy recovery capacity in Scotland led to its moratorium. Colin is an influential figure in the waste sector, and his work and views carry a lot of weight. So let's hear what he has to say. Hello, Colin. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. Hi, Luke. It's a pleasure. I understand it's been a very busy time for you recently.
1: Yes, what with one thing and another. Uh, Alongside the day job, I've also been doing some work for the Scottish Government looking at the role of incineration in managing waste in Scotland.
0: Talking about the Scottish Government, today there is breaking news as we're recording this and it looks like Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, will step down. The details are still unclear, but the second part of your review is with the Scottish Government and we're awaiting its response. Do you think this will delay the process?
1: It really rather depends on the internal politics of the Scottish Government and the the stance of the new First Minister. I mean, this is an issue that's close to the heart, certainly, of the Minister that I've been dealing with. And I think it's something, generally speaking, that the Scottish government has been positive about. That is to say, how to reach net zero. But obviously, if the minister changes in the new government, then the dynamic will shift. I don't really know. Too early to tell. But maybe.
0: (laughs) That makes sense. I should say, in the first series we recorded, we went through three UK prime ministers. (laughs) We've got a good track record. If we could start with the first part of your review, though, it recommended a halt to new EFW capacity. Can you explain a bit more about the methodology that led to that?
1: Yeah, so Stop, Sort, Burn, bury was the title I gave it. And and that was a, a reflection, if you like, of the hierarchy. You should stop waste being created. If you can't stop it from being created, you should sort it out as much as possible into different streams. If you can't do that, then burning it is better than burying it. And my review very much supported that perspective. In terms of the detail of the methodology, what we did is we commissioned some work from Consultancy Ricardo, who looked at... All of the capacity that was either already operating in Scotland for dealing with residual waste out of landfill or contented or planned and we looked at some different scenarios for the future projections of waste arisings. how much waste would be generated and we looked at different ways of modeling that and decided that the best way to model commercial industrial waste was linking to GDP and the best way to model household waste was linking to household numbers came up with a range of scenarios depending on different assumptions that you might make about how effective Scottish government policies will be about waste prevention and recycling and so on and so forth to come up with a prediction of likely amount of residual waste needing to be dealt with going forward and overlaid this line graph, if you like, with a bar chart of capacity being potentially constructed. And what that showed very, very clearly was that there was likely to be insufficient capacity to deal with Scotland's residual waste up until about the middle of this decade. But very quickly towards the end of this decade, that position would change if everything was built that was in the pipeline and you'd end up with massive, massive overcapacity. And clearly what you don't really want to be doing is building multi-million pound infrastructure with a lifetime of 25 plus years to deal with a capacity gap that might exist only for a couple of three years. So that was essentially the finding, the methodology and the conclusion. I must say that I was really grateful to an awful lot of stakeholders in Scotland who provided a lot of information and input to the review, both on capacities and modelling, but on the other aspects of the review as well. I was also really pleased by the reception when it landed. I don't think there was really anyone who fundamentally questioned the messages of the review, that's because they were blindingly obvious once you had them.
0: I agree with you. And I think you've explained the methodology really well there. There were some in the waste sector who said Scotland was effectively closed for business because they wanted to develop more energy from waste capacity. And they said they wouldn't invest in these projects if they didn't see
1: there was a capacity. What would you say to them? It depends on what you mean. If the only kind of business you're interested in is incineration, then yes, there is a limited market for it in Scotland. Frankly, I would say there's a limited market in the rest of the UK. You know, I've seen reports by other people that suggest that the UK as a whole probably needs only half a dozen more incineration plants to deal with its capacity. And, you know, you could argue whether it's five, six, seven, eight, but it's not a bottomless pit, no pun intended, for investment and construction. I think it's also really important to say I am absolutely adamant that waste incineration, energy from waste, has a vital role to play currently in managing our waste. But it's not a long-term solution. It is not consistent with a truly circular economy. It's not consistent with net zero. It's not consistent with husbanding our resources in the way that we need to do. You have to have a limit on it, both in quantity and in time. I wanted to ask you, if I could, about gasification-equipped plants. There's two developers,
0: Barr and Levenseit, both have planning consent for such plants. Barr definitely wants to switch to a grape-based system, and Levenseit has yet to move forward on the planning consent it got in 2020 for its phase two. So are these consented gasification plants creating false capacity?
1: I think you can talk about false capacity in lots of different ways. In the analysis that Ricardo did for us, there were lots of plants at lots of different stages if you like of development and it's absolutely the case that some of those plants do need to be built and uh, made operational but i don't think it's a gasification versus a different kind of plant argument i think it's all straightforward energy from waste plants moving grate, rotating kiln gasification whatever it might be
0: I thought another interesting element post your review was Peel's plastic to hydrogen plant. It was called in by the government saying the review hadn't considered such facilities and Peel eventually pulled the project as a result. Hypothetically, had your review considered such plants, what would you have recommended?
1: Well, actually, if you read part two, it does talk about this. And basically what we end up saying in part two of the report is that if you've got a plant that is not emitting CO2 to the atmosphere and it's converting waste plastic to some other feedstock or any kind of waste to some other kind of feedstock, then it's not the same as a energy from waste plant. It is actually a chemical process plant. And therefore, it could potentially be consistent with what I've said in the review and the Scottish government's targets. It's also important to say as well that one of the key recommendations from the second report is this point about stopping to incinerate plastic. A lot of that plastic either is now or will in the future be recyclable through mechanical recycling. But there'll be a fraction of it for which probably chemical recycling, which is effectively what we're talking about in terms of this kind of process, is going to be the best solution going forward. And that needs to not be stopped, if that makes sense.
0: So I think what you're saying is that maybe Peel went a bit too early by pulling their plans and they should have held out for the second part of the review. Uh, You might think that. I couldn't possibly comment. (laughs) Fair enough. Also, your first review did leave the door open for additional capacity in rural areas. One of the local authorities, the Highlands Council, has long-standing plans to build an 80,000 tonne-a-year EFW plant so its waste doesn't have to travel 200 miles by road to the Dunbar
1: facility. What's your view on that plan and other rural projects? That problem, if you like, of rurality and and remoteness in Scotland absolutely underpinned that exemption in what I recommended. I do recognise overall, environmentally, it might well be better. To have a small scale energy from waste facility that concentrates some of the remoter waste arisings, if you like. I'm not saying it's definitely the right answer. But I'm not saying it's definitely the wrong answer. I'm saying that it should be allowed if, on analysis, it does turn out to be the best thing. It's also possible that a better thing for places like that might be a combination of some kind of advanced biostabilisation and landfill. But again, you know, that needs to be worked through. I was deeply conscious all the way through the review that Scotland is very heterogeneous when it comes to its population densities and its economic activities and so on. Really quite urban areas and obviously the central bow as a whole, versus some really quite rural areas. It's unlikely that one size will fit all of those. It's interesting you mention perhaps more landfill, because
0: I was thinking about your review, and the second part of your review, which you have mentioned, talks about how energy recovery has lowered emissions from Scotland's waste, mainly through the diversion away from landfill. With the increasing capacity of energy from waste, will we eventually run out of landfill use in Scotland?
1: Of course, there's a ban coming in 2025 for biodegradable waste to landfill in Scotland. That's where the majority of the emissions that people are concerned about come from. The combination of the ban and the availability of other sources, energy from waste or whatever else it might be, I think is going to reduce demand for landfill. And you can already see it. There's um, an interesting conundrum that we all need to work out, and whether that's just in Scotland or elsewhere in the UK how do you manage unexpected problems so if you think about it for an energy from waste plant there's a relatively narrow operational window in terms of how much stuff over what period of time it can deal with has to have enough to keep burning and not so much that it can't keep up a landfill site is much much more flexible both in what it can take and the quantity and and time period in which you can take it and until we get to a position where our waste arisings are substantially smaller than they are now it might well be that occasionally landfill is the only thing that we can do to manage that problem because let's not forget fundamentally what we're talking about here is a sanitary process the handling of residual waste is to protect human health and the environment and we have to do that otherwise we get disease and infestations of vermin and all the rest of the stuff you get so you can't just leave it lying around you have to do something with it You mentioned
0: the landfill ban. Obviously, it's been pushed back once. Does it change your review, uh, either parts of it, if it was pushed back again? I don't think so,
1: um, unless there was a fundamental change in the Scottish Government's approach to meeting net zero and to tackling resource efficiency and circular economy, which I don't expect to see. I think the timing of the ban, if you compare it to the analysis in the first report, does suggest that there is a capacity gap for a couple of three years. So there are multiple ways of dealing with that capacity gap. One is to push the ban further into the future so that enough infrastructure is constructed before the ban comes in. Another is to export, inverted commas export, so out of Scotland, some of that waste, so to England or whatever else, or to send it as RDF to other countries. So there are different approaches you might take and different costs and benefits, pros and cons, if you like, of those different approaches. And I'm sure that people in the Scottish Government are thinking very hard indeed about how to square that particular circle. I don't think it affects the reports really, although I would hope that the evidence in the report informs some of those choices.
0: I'd like to talk about the moratoriums in Wales and Scotland, and small-scale plants in particular. Wales allow small plants to be developed under the SWIP process, but Scotland doesn't. Should there perhaps be a new policy for smaller facilities in Scotland?
1: So at one level, there is that possibility because the Scottish government accepted my recommendations and my recommendations included a potential exemption for remote and remote will be small by definition. I've not done the in-depth work for Wales that I did for Scotland, so I can't, compare directly but certainly the evidence we saw is you don't need those small scale plants in scotland apart from the rural bit because the larger scale ones will cover the ground nicely thank you that makes sense and you've touched on this already
0: you've mentioned the headline grabber from the second part of your review which was that plastic shouldn't go to energy from waste i think most people in the industry agree that it needs to be diverted but there needs to be more investment in other facilities and you did touch on the chemical recycling Apart from the peel one that was in the pipeline, I don't know if there are any other plants in Scotland. Does your review list any plants on that?
1: It doesn't. I know that some people are looking at how to do this kind of thing in Scotland. It's clearly an issue. Don't get me wrong, I didn't make that recommendation assuming that somebody would wave a magic wand and all of the plastic would evaporate. I do recognise that there are some serious issues in terms of how you deal with it. But what I was asked was, how do you decarbonise energy from waste? And given that you either stop fossil stuff going in or you capture it when it comes out. Those are your two options. And wholesale capture is not going to work for all plants in Scotland anytime soon. The only thing you can do to decarbonise the plant is to stop putting fossil stuff in. It's a logical conclusion. So if you are serious about reaching net zero in Scotland by 2045... Ideally, substantially before then, you have to not be burning plastic.
0: You did mention the carbon capture element there. The UK has two clusters in the northeast and northwest pan, a reserve one in Scotland. We don't know if that will ever go ahead. Does your review consider the cluster prospects?
1: Yeah, we talked to ACORN, which is the main project. When Unomia did the analysis that underpins aspects of the second report for us, we asked them to take a relatively optimistic view of where you might be able to build carbon capture facilities on energy from waste and they modelled it on the basis that you'd start with clusters and then you'd work further afield if you like but their assessment is incredibly optimistic (laughs) and given that their modelling timescale was 2035 it's unrealistically optimistic at one level but it was the way that we had to do the approach For me, carbon capture and storage is a potentially important technology for a number of industrial processes such as energy from waste. But it's not the answer if you want to decarbonise anytime soon, because it's just too expensive, too impractical to put on all of those plants. And the same in England. I mean, you know, those clusters are going to be great. And there's a number of other facilities that probably because of their location are going to be well endowed with what's necessary. They've got the space, they generate enough electricity so the parasitic load isn't too great. They've got a connection. or a potential connection to some form of sensible transport, whether it's by ship or by pipeline. But there are going to be other facilities that don't.
0: Another element of decarbonisation that energy from waste plants can be involved in is the supply of heat. And your second part of your review had another push on that. But I think there's been a public lack of acceptance around district heating systems. But has rising
1: prices maybe changed this? I think there's a combination of things that are changing that. I think rising prices is absolutely... You know, If you can go to your local community and say we can guarantee you 30% cheaper heating or or whatever it might be for 10 years, then there's going to be much more appetite now than there might have been in the past. That's clearly the case. There are more and more examples of it working in the UK and the age old horror stories of district heating where the only way to cool your house was to open all of the windows. If the heating was on, it was on and you had no control, except that's not how it works anymore. You know, it's very much more adjustable and uh, meanable to your own preferences. You just look at the example in Lerwick, which I think is a, a wonderful example of a heat network with an energy from waste plant. They struggle to keep up with the demand of people who want to join the network because it's such a, a popular thing. And I think the third thing is that, I don't want to over egg this, because you know I'm a nerd, so I'm in the, the nerd space. But I think there is a growing awareness in the general population of the fact that having effectively dealt with electricity generation decarbonisation, and now having a fairly clear view about how we're going to do most modes of transport, we now need to worry about decarbonising heat. And there are several different approaches. Heat pumps, obviously one. Heat networks, another, um, depending on their heat source. So people are just starting to have a bit more of a understanding that that might be good for their eco-credentials, if you like. And that won't count for everybody. I don't imagine it account for a majority, but it does help to move the debate slightly away from that sort of Stalinist tower block view of district heating that many people have.
0: Yeah, I think that that has put people off in the past. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think when the Greens entered the Scottish Government with the SNP, that's when your review really started to gain traction. And say there was a UK-wide election and a Labour-Green Party coalition came to power and they asked you to produce a UK-wide EFW capacity review. What's your response?
1: I'd be very happy to talk to them about that. I think it might take a little bit longer than I had for the Scottish one. And in Scotland, we were really helped by the fact that we were able to build on evidence and understanding that had already been put in place. But, you know, even then, the the time I was given was pretty hair-raisingly short. And it's interesting. So if you look at the Climate Change Committee annual report recommendations... It recommends that Wales, Northern Ireland and England follow the example of the Scottish government and undertake a proper capacity analysis modelling exercise. Now, whether that leads to a moratorium or, or something
0: else, I don't know. The UK government has backed away so far from following Wales and Scotland. It seems like it'll stay in that way, at least at the moment. Is that what you'd think?
1: Yeah, I think this administration is unlikely to be positive about the idea of a moratorium. I think it's, it's really interesting because if, if I were an investor looking to invest in energy from waste anywhere in the UK now. I'd look at the examples in Wales, I'd look at the examples in Scotland, and I'd ask myself, do I really believe the waste modelling I'm seeing? And is there really going to be enough waste to mean I'm going to get my money back over 25 years? I hear stories from waste consultants who do waste assessments for the people who are trying to get investors on board. And increasingly, I'm hearing—I'm going to simplify and paraphrase—but basically, stories that amount to those consultants being told, "Well, actually, do you think you could enlarge the, the hinterland a bit? Do you think you could include more types of waste because the numbers they're coming up with aren't quite high enough?" That's okay once or twice, maybe, but if they're all having to do that to make their numbers stack up, then you are building up a potential problem for investors in energy from waste. So. Yes, I think the government is unlikely to move down that direction now, but I would imagine it's going to get a tighter and tighter place to to build more kit because... You don't mind being the last one to build a successful EFW. What you don't want to be is the first one to deliver a failure. Yeah, (laughs) I think that is
0: a very good point. If I can talk about when you were in the UK Government Department deck, where you led on operation and development of the EU Emissions Trading Scheme, the ETS. Currently, both the EU and the UK versions are now working towards the inclusion of EFW plants, which were excluded until
1: now. What do you think of this? In principle, I think it's the right thing to do. There are a number of reasons why I think it's the right thing to do. The first one is when that exemption was created, the view was that something like two thirds of material going into an energy from waste plant was biogenic and therefore its carbon didn't count and therefore it was a low energy, renewable energy kind of source and therefore it shouldn't be caught. That's probably no longer true and increasingly won't be true as we get better at food waste recycling, at paper recycling, at cardboard recycling, and so on and so forth, the biogenic element is dropping. When I was still in government about 10, 12 years ago now, we did some work looking at the biogenic content in residual waste in in England. It was probably just over 50%. And I imagine that if you did the work again now, it would have dropped still further using the same methodology. Now, different areas have different numbers and so on, but everyone is seeing that drop. So arguing that an energy from waste plant should be exempt from control under an emission trading scheme because it's biogenic and renewable, that's just not flying anymore. The second reason is it all counts. The carbon dioxide is still adding to the atmosphere and we need to understand that and we need to manage that. And as we get closer to running out of our carbon budget, my view is, and I'm, I'm being a bit provocative here, I know, but my view is that even shorter term carbon, like carbon from timber that might be 100 years old, will start to matter because the atmosphere doesn't distinguish between fossil and biogenic CO2 it's all just CO2 it all just adds to the greenhouse effect and if we're running out of space then we need to worry about emitting any kind of CO2 whether it's short or long term the third reason is we talked a bit about carbon capture being a potential for some facilities but not really going to be the answer for everyone but it is the case that for some facilities, if you are able to make sure that you're putting in biogenic material for incineration and you've got carbon capture and storage, then effectively you have the potential to get negative emissions, to pull more out of the atmosphere through a combination of growing the crop in the first place and then burning it but capturing the CO2. And that needs to be accounted for and incentivized. And one way to do that is to put it into the emissions trading scheme in a sensible way that allows you to manage that. So in principle, I think it's really sensible. I think there are two issues that we need to worry about, at least two issues that we need to worry about. One is the practicality of monitoring. How do you do continuous monitoring to make sure you know what's coming out? And particularly if you're going to do isotopic analysis to know whether it's fossil or biogenic, that's an issue. And the second is you need to make sure that in doing it, you don't there's a technical term, screw up the entire resource and waste management system, right? Again, my report tries to make this point, and I feel sometimes like I'm hitting my head against the wall, but you have to consider it as a collective system. And if you don't think through the implications of doing something to one bit of it, then you can have a problem elsewhere. I often describe it as a partially inflated water balloon and you squeeze it in one place and it pops up somewhere else, but you don't necessarily know where it's going to pop up until you squeeze it. So you have to understand that holistic system and you have to worry about it as a holistic system. Yes, we should include energy from waste in emissions trading, but then we need to work out what that's going to do to the rest of the system, because what we don't want to do is to incentivise the wrong behaviours, the wrong outcomes elsewhere.
0: I totally understand. And finally, the last question I ask everyone that's on the burning issue is, what is the question I should have asked you and how would you have answered it?
1: Perhaps you should ask me, how long is energy from waste going to be viable? (laughs) That is a good question. (laughs) I don't really know. I was talking to somebody the other day about this. When we did, again, we did some modelling back in 2014 or something like that in, in DEFRA. It showed that electricity only energy from waste was likely to be carbon positive up until about the end of this decade, maybe middle of next decade. And then after that, it will flip. And that's because of two things, changing composition and also changing grid intensity, carbon intensity, because the lower the carbon intensity of the grid, the less positive energy from waste is again if you're talking net zero being a driving feature for everybody then you kind of have to think that sometime in the 2030s any facility that is burning stuff and allowing co2 to escape into the atmosphere starts to look a bit dodgy i wouldn't want to put an absolute date on it but i would like to see no more plant built after the 2020s and I would like to see most plants shut by the 2040s. Actually shut by the 2040s. Or carbon capture storage operation or whatever else your bog standard energy electricity only chuck it up the chimney facility it's it's days are numbered and and the same applies to other sorts of incineration i mean we we need to work out what we're going to do about hazardous waste incineration but wood waste for example how are we going to manage that again if you can do carbon capture and storage on it brilliant because you can do some nice things there but if it's just using it for heat generating electricity and chucking it up the chimney basically we've got to stop burning stuff as a race as a planet. Because that's what's giving us air quality problems, climate change problems, heavy metal pollutants, blah blah
0: I think the waste wood market's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, we don't really cover that in this podcast at the moment. There's plants being built and they don't have feedstock and now we're importing it for them and you don't want the same thing to end up with the energy from waste market.
1: Yep, yeah, exactly.
0: Well, Colin, thank you so much for your time. You've explained a lot of issues for me today. Thank you very much.
1: Pleasure. Thanks very much indeed, Luke.
0: All that's left for me to say is thank you for listening. This has been The Burning Issue. I'm Luke Walsh, and if you want to learn more about energy recovery, go to the website endswasteandbioenergy.com. On the site, you can sign up for our free newsletters or take out a subscription if you want.